Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. And thank you so much for being with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Hope you had a very nice weekend and your stool is ready uh, to dig into another busy week here in the uh, nation's capital and beyond with our good, bad, and crazy martinis. If you weren't with us late last week, you missed the fact that I'm supposed to be on vacation this week. That was the plan anyway, but a family member uh, came down with COVID, and so those plans got derailed. Hopefully only temporarily, but uh, I'm happy to report that the family member is doing well, and to this point, nobody else has gotten it. So hopefully, we'll get a little vacation time later in the summer. But uh, Jim, we got a uh, chock-full lineup today with good, bad, and crazy, and let's start with the good. And This comes to us from the uh, Associated Press when it comes to party switchers. Uh, AP reports a political shift is beginning to take hold across the United States as tens of thousands of suburban swing voters who helped fuel the Democratic Party's gains in recent years are becoming Republicans. More than one million voters across 43 states have switched to the Republican Party over the last year, according to voter registration data analyzed by the Associated Press. The previously unreported number reflects a phenomenon that is playing out in virtually every region of the country, Democratic and Republican states, along with cities and small towns, in the period since President Joe Biden replaced former President Donald Trump. But nowhere is the shift more pronounced and dangerous for Democrats than in the suburbs, where well-educated swing voters who turned against Trump's Republican Party in recent years appear to be swinging back. Over the last year, far more people are switching to the GOP across suburban counties from Denver to Atlanta and Pittsburgh and Cleveland. Republicans also gain ground in counties around medium-sized cities such as Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Raleigh, North Carolina, Augusta, Georgia, and Des Moines, Iowa. So, uh, Jim, we expected, obviously, a pretty significant shift between the last midterms in 2018 and the one here in 2022. Uh, The left, of course, is hoping that guns and abortion are going to blunt that and maybe even shift a few people back. But uh, I I think the smarter bet is that the trend lines are still going in the right direction here, and it seems pretty strongly, and in the right areas. Well, first of all, Greg, I want to welcome you to this week. Your loss is our gain. And uh, I want to salute you for never invoking the Kevin Smith line from Clerks. I'm not even supposed to be here today. <laughs> um, great attitude on a week, week you wanted to be on vacation. Uh, look, this number is pretty eye-popping. Uh, the scale of it, the, the scope of it across the country. Um, I think what's particularly, you know, almost a little bit delicious about it. I'm, I'm going to be a little critical of somebody who I'm usually on good terms with. Uh, S.E. Cup was very kind, blurbing some of my books and stuff like that. And, you know, towards the after the Roe v. Wade overturning decision came out, S.E. Cup, who's the uh, parent, a mother of a, of a special needs child, uh, took her and CNN colleague Anna Navarro to task, pointing out because Navarro had basically said something that sounded like she was suggesting that those with disabilities are better off not being born. Uh, S.E. Cup took exception to that, as I think any other parent would. And I, I salute her for that. This morning, S.E. Cup was again on S- on CNN and uh, was talking about this decision. And the quote here is that, quote, it's hard to imagine the Republican Party surviving this. Between anti-abortion, anti-LGBTQ, book banning, anti-democracy, add all the regressive BS garbage, there's no future generation. It's all GOP shrinking and condensing. And of course, then like an hour later, this AP report comes out saying, oh, by the way, lots of people are switching party registration to the Republican Party. 
Um, I have been hearing, you know, since, since you and I have been doing this podcast, the Republicans are a rump regional party and they're going to die off uh, after Obama's election in 2009, after Bill Clinton's election in 1992. Tomorrow always belongs to the Democrats in, a whole, in certain people's minds. And yet they never, tomorrow never seems to get here. You know, lo and behold, the Republican Party adapts and the Democratic Party adapts. And lo and behold, we get having something akin to equilibrium. You may have noticed over the last generation or two, it's been very, very tough to have any kind of sustained period of both part a control a party controlling both parties, uh, both houses of Congress, and controlling the White House. Americans basically try something, and sometimes they're okay with it a while. But I think honestly, the history of midterm elections is they elect somebody and say, "Oh my goodness, I don't like that at all," and then they vote for the other party. And then you know, two to six years later, the other party gets into party in the White House. Usually, they have big coattails. They sweep in the other one. You know, Obama takes over in 2008, and lo and behold, by 2010, Americans are like, "Oh my God, I don't like this at all. This is terrible." No, no, no. And the Republicans get control of the House back in. Um, that has been this pendulum effect in our politics. And while it's theoretically possible one party could build a lasting either center-right or center-left coalition. Uh, neither one of them has managed to do it. In almost every case, either the extremes or other factors come along that make this the majority party get, you know, they, they are in, they're responsible for the state of the country. They are running the government. People get frustrated with the state of the country and they get tossed out. And that's what looks like it's gonna happen here in 2022. These numbers indicating changing of, of voting registration, think about that. In most cases, you gotta pick effort. You gotta fill out a form. You gotta mail it in, or you gotta go in person to do that. Most people, you know, in this state, for example, in the state of Virginia, we're, we don't have registration by party. So basically your party identity is what mood you're in on any given day. But in these cases, in these other states where you do register by party, the numbers are pretty significant. Now, could this court decision end up reversing that? I suppose. Could mass shootings have an effect? I, I guess. But, you know, we haven't seen this after past mass shootings. Could the January 6th hearings do this? Ah, you know, look, the... the this didn't happen after January 6th. This is all in the past year or so. So you look at all this stuff, it does not indicate that there's any type of, you know, grand backlash against the Democrats. And I kind of think, you know, for people who think, oh, Republicans are turning into this rump regional party. The reason people don't call the Democrats a rump regional party is that their regions are spread out across the country. But other than that, they are pretty much, you know, up northeast and west coast and some of the upper Midwest of, you know, Illinois and Minnesota and places like that. So you know, look, we'll see what happens, but this is one more indicator pointing to a red wave come November. And I think the argument of, oh, the Republican Party is shrinking, it's you know, aging off and dying, um, is just completely at odds with what we've seen in recent elections. And it becomes, you know, at some point, these pundits are putting their fingers in their ears and saying, no, 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 I can't hear you, um, because they don't want to hear it, because they're convinced that their ideology must be the most popular one in this country. Yeah, Jim, a couple of quick reactions to that, especially in our current climate here, uh, further down the road, who knows. But first of all, uh, with this assumption from the left and the media that this is going to be a radical shift uh, in the suburbs and beyond because of Roe, uh, once I think people there understand what the court actually did, they didn't ban abortions completely in the country. They simply left the issue up to the states. And so when people understand what may or may not be changing in their state, I suspect it's going to be less of an issue, despite the fact that the mainstream media is trying to uh, explain this to a lot of people. Secondly, about uh, S.E. Cup saying that uh, there's no future for the Republican Party. I believe the last poll I saw said that young voters had a 22 percent approval rating for Joe Biden. Doesn't mean they're going to go to the right, but they're not happy with what they're seeing on the left. That's for sure. So I don't know if that means that their student debt is still there. Uh, and that's why they're upset. 
or whether uh, they just see that there's no competence whatsoever in this administration. It's the eternal now, right? <laughs> whatever is happening at this very moment is having like things look really good for Republicans. And I would warn Republicans who are looking at ah, well, it's a straight shot from here. We went back to House and Senate in 2022. We went back to presidency in 2024. And from 2025 on, we usher in this new golden era of conservatism slash populism slash nationalism. And you know what? My guess is that won't happen because inevitably this pendulum effect, sooner or later, your guys in office will screw up too and the pendulum will, swift, will swing back. Could it change? Sure, but I would not, uh, you know, a whole lot of political prognostication seems to be a, the art and practice of counting chickens before they hatch. Yeah, basically the biggest asset each party has is the other party. Yes. <laughs> Overplaying yes. their hand. And, and not being in power when things hit the fan. Yes. Right. Exactly. Jim, did you say presidency a minute ago? Because that's interesting because mm. we're brought to you in part today by the Presidential Election Project. Imagine a scenario in 2024 that is similar to 2020 with a lot of questions about irregularities and votes and even debates and recounts of votes in key states. Except this time, it's not Mike Pence, but Vice President Kamala Harris who's being urged to interpret her role in the process as one where she has the right to determine which electoral votes count. And why? Because the Electoral Count Act just isn't specific enough. The Presidential Election Project wants to see this changed. Go to presidentialelectionproject.com now and sign up to get updates. Learn more about this very important procedural ceremony and what steps Congress is taking to reform and clarify our electoral process. The project once again urges you to visit presidentialelectionproject.com and sign up to get updates so that by 2024, there's no question that Vice President Harris will not have the power to overturn those results. Again, presidentialelectionproject.com. All right, Jim, this is a bad martini that I was absolutely teeing up to do on Friday. And then we got a major Supreme Court decision, which obviously blew out all other stories, and rightly so. But this story is not going away, as evidenced by the fact that we're doing it today. And it's the state of the media. And it comes to us from a guy named David Mastiau who's no MAGA guy, that's for sure. He hates Trump. But he's been uh, working over the years at a number of conservative publications. Recently, he's worked on the op-ed page of USA Today. Until recently. Then on a Friday, he unleashed a massive Twitter thread about why he's no longer there. I don't know if I'm going to read all of this, but I'm going to read a lot of it. So bear with me because I think a lot of it's pertinent here. He says, after 25 years associated with Gannett and USA Today, I've got some things to say about how the company is going off the rails. Wokeism is taking over and conservatives are being purged. He says, I'm partially to blame because I didn't speak up publicly until the axe fell on me. I was demoted for tweeting that women are the people who get pregnant. A braying mob of my colleagues demanded I be fired for making the workplace unsafe. But before we get to me, here's what happened across the country before Gannett announced this month that it was shuttering or scaling back all of its daily opinion pages across dozens of states except the flagship of USA Today. USA Today's editorial page editor, Kristen Dalguzzi, said it was because opinion pages across the company had failed to evolve. Gannett's local opinion pages have evolved plenty, but in recent years, readers have concluded they just don't like what they've evolved into. Over the last decade, Gannett has purged the conservative voices at its local papers. There used to be dozens of feisty conservative opinion pages, often with staff of one or two. Now, they're gone. How do I know? Every day for years, a memo has gone out sharing local opinion that would be of interest nationwide. Conservatives don't appear there much anymore beyond a few freelancers. 
For instance, in New Jersey, three of Gannett's papers endorsed the Republican for governor only a few years ago, but in 2021, none did. The intellectually diverse local editorial boards were replaced with a statewide liberal board that endorsed the Democrat. He says the same things about editorial editorial cartoonists. All the conservatives are gone now. And he says local editorial page editors who dare to publish something controversial and conservative can't be sure it will run. Junior staffers at regional design centers can overrule them, spiking copy in the print edition. Do you want to know why Gannett opinion pages died? They were murdered when corporate wokeism replaced intellectually diverse voices in touch with communities, substituting a standardized liberalism out of place in many towns served by the newspaper giant. And so he goes on and on and on about the DEI agenda at USA Today. And so uh, not only did he say that only women could have babies, but uh, he was initially demoted and and threatened with a loss of $30,000 a year pay. But then people went into his archives, Jim. And uh, in one uh, editorial, he wrote that Donald Trump was not fit to clean the toilets of the Barack Obama presidential library. And he was criticized heavily for uh, casting toilet cleaners in a negative light. And so uh, he once again ran afoul of the diversity side, uh, and he's out. So uh, USA Today has gone off the rails, I think it's fairly safe to say, assuming what he's telling us is true. And it sounds like um, their whole chain is pretty much following suit. Yeah, this is really disturbing on a number of levels. For, for starters, um, yeah, everyone knows USA Today. My guess is everybody listening um, to this uh, podcast has you know, uh, you know, browsed through the infographics, if nothing else, or the extensive <laughs> sports statistics of USA Today. But the Gannett chain really is one of the biggest and most extensive chains. And my odds, the odds are pretty good that if wherever you're living, there's probably a Gannett newspaper near you. Uh, some of the bigger names are the Arizona Republic, Indiana Star. Um, I was just going through the list as I was, you know, composed three, at least three of them I wrote for back in my wire service days. The uh, party Worcester Telegram and Gazette. I know for the first couple of days I was there, I thought it was the Worcester Telegram and Gazette, uh, the record of, of Bergen County, North Jersey, and uh, the Pueblo Chieftain out in Colorado. Um, I was working for a small wire service called State's News Service. We were basically the Washington Bureau for newspapers that either didn't have a Washington Bureau or who um, had one but had more work than that, uh, than that bureau could handle. And at the time, I mean, would I see things in those newspapers that struck me as more left of center? Did they generally have left of center editorial boards? Yeah, but you know, at most of these places, you'd have at least one conservative columnist, or they'd run George Will, or you know, Bill O'Reilly was very popular. Who, um, I'm trying to think who else. Uh, Cal Thomas, right? At the time, there were a decent number of conservative columnists that you'd see in these newspapers, and you would feel, particularly on local issues and on state issues, stuff in their backyard. By and large, the coverage was pretty reliable. Um, maybe, you know, gripe with a headline here or there, but by and large, um, they, you could count on them to give you the story. The portrait that David Ostio uh, paints here is really an ugly one and one we've kind of wondered about because we're not privy to what goes on. But so all we can judge a newspaper on is what's on what, what comes out every day, either in print or on that website. We, we don't know what's going on in the meetings. We don't understand you know, when people pitch story ideas, which ones get accepted, which ones get rejected. What's the, the mood there? And he points to one that basically is just kind of strangling the paper from within. It basically is absolutely adamant that not a single right of center viewpoint be allowed to appear in those pages. And that it, when it is expressed by those within the ranks, that those within the ranks get driven out, including Mastio. It's really a um, unnerving portrait suggesting that most of the people who are involved in USA Today 
and in much of the, the Gannett chain believe their job is to tell Americans what to think, not to tell them what's going on. Um, now, obviously, the fact that they've decided to get rid of their editorial writing, well, okay, maybe they, maybe they just feel like there's just so much of it out there, there's not any need for it. But I, my guess is that people aren't reading the editorial page anymore. Maybe it's because you don't, you're, you've all become uh, too boring, too predictable, too similar to everything else that's out there. Um, you know, if you've already eliminated all of your conservative columnists and all of a sudden your readership goes down, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe one thing leads to another there. So um, it is deeply frustrating. And considering the sad state of the newspaper industry in general, loss of advertising sales, increasing competition, et cetera, et cetera, delivery costs, paper costs are up, ink, t- print and toner costs are up, you know, all of these other things working against the newspaper industry. It is utterly asinine to decide to take your local newspaper and try to turn it into a left wing uh, propaganda rag. And yet that's what's going on in there. And then they look at this and say, oh, my goodness, why are all these people not subscribing anymore? Oh, by the way, the, the audience that is most reliably subscribing to your local newspaper generally is senior citizens who are generally not exclusively, but generally more right of center. So what you have are these young 20-something, you know, nose-ringed, purple-haired types who are trying to, you know, give their spin on the news to an audience of Fox News watchers who don't want to hear it. <laughs> All they want is how the local Little League is doing and how is the local sports team doing, high school sports team's doing, what's going on in the city council. You know, these are, when is the, the Rutabaga Festival? Like, there's, there's a whole need for local news in these communities. And it's you know, driving people away because we've decided to do this 14-part series in uh, on you know the environmental racism of you know potato farmers or something like that. It's just this utterly insufferable woke um, ideology that is infusing all of the coverage that makes people say to hell with this. I don't want. I don't, I'm not going to bother reading it. And then people say, like, "Why? How could we be losing all these subscribers? Maybe you should try listening to them. See what happens." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'll get down off my soapbox. Wow, you did a very good job on that soapbox. But yeah, I think you put your finger on the on the pulse here because USA Today is not alone. We've talked about it recently with the, all the nonsense that happened in the Washington Post newsroom. Now, mm-hmm. some of the people instigating that aren't exactly fresh out of college. Some of these people in their late 30s or late 40s, depending on on which you know person we're talking Nobody about. Nobody knows how old Taylor Lorenz is. Stirring the pot. Uh, but One we, of life's great mysteries. <laughs> exactly. And we, we talked about how the young people- You could be anything. Sorry, <laughs> And then, of course, you got the young people who, you know, totally messed up the uh, New York Times uh, editorial department. And now you've got uh, Mastio here saying uh, junior staffers at regional design centers can overrule local editorial page editors. So the inmates are running the asylum, which, going back to our first story, makes me think that that's why SC Cup thinks that the young people are en masse uh, never going to give the Republicans a second look because – the people that age who work for CNN probably won't. I mean, that's the, mm-hmm. that's the demographic she's probably looking at and talking to most of the time. Uh, and in in mainstream media, she's probably right. But mainstream media, thankfully, is not representative of the entire country. I was going to say, if you work for a news organization and you wish to present the world as it is, you probably should talk to people outside of your news organization. It's such a radical concept, but yeah, I think that would... <laughs> your, your, your co-workers may not completely represent the entire demographics of the entire country. Go figure. It's amazing. The bubble is thick. The bubble is thick. Uh, all right, well, let's talk about uh, another sponsor we have today, and that is NetChoice. As Americans, innovation has always been what makes us different. America's tech industry outpaces the world. We have the most innovative companies that power our economy and way of life. And why? Free market innovation. That's what makes us number one. 
But some in Washington want to put big government in charge of America's top innovators, attacking our own in the name of competition, while our true competitors like Europe and China close the gap. NetChoice believes congressional conservatives must stand for American innovation, not big government, by rejecting progressive antitrust proposals. They encourage you to tell your senator to oppose Senator Amy Klobuchar's Senate Resolution 2992. Learn more about this fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org slash 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. All right, Jim, on to the crazy martini now. And uh, one of the things that's fascinating, especially over the last few weeks, is not only the really loud whispers about whether Joe Biden is even going to bother running again in 2024. And I'm talking about from Democrats, not just uh, people in the media and uh, people on the right who certainly don't want to see him have another term, uh, but just open speculation about his future. And he's so unpopular now that even ideas that he's out there projecting in public a lot of Democrats are just like, nah, I don't think we're going to go with that. And the latest issue along those lines is the suspension of the federal gas tax. Uh, a lot of people in Washington just kind of yawning and moving on from Biden uh, trying to make that happen. Uh, one of them who's on board, though, is Patty Murray, the Washington Democratic senator who somehow has been there for 30 years now. She's up for reelection to a sixth term this year. I don't know if it's a super competitive race yet. She's likely to face Tiffany Smiley in November, who I don't believe has run for office before, but uh, she's a very impressive candidate. Her husband's an Iraq War veteran, permanently blinded there, and she worked tirelessly to help uh, fix the VA in in the wake of that. And so um, she certainly knows how a lot of the political system here in Washington works. Uh, And she's a a strong candidate, I think, but it's Washington State, so obviously the deck is stacked somewhat in Murray's favor. But uh, back in 2008, uh, Patty Murray wanted nothing to do with a uh, gas tax suspension because, of course, you know that would have perhaps given some political comfort to George W. Bush or John McCain at that point. Uh, and so um, uh, her spokesman at the time said there's no guarantee that the plan would result in lower gas prices, but it would deteriorate highway funding. Barack Obama who, you know, Biden, of course, uh, ended up running with that year, called the move at that time a politically motivated gimmick. So, Jim, this is not a um, one-party issue. You and I know very well here in Virginia that Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin's been pushing for the suspension of the state gasoline tax, which I think is about 26 cents for a long time now. He's gone 0 for 3 with the legislature and trying to make that happen. So, he and Biden are making strange bedfellows on this particular issue. Uh, doesn't look like either one of them is going to happen, though. So uh, what do you make of the the convenient position changing when it comes to this issue and for Patty Murray in particular? Yeah, well, first of all, your position on whether suspending a gas tax is a good idea really should not depend on which politician is proposing it. If it's right. a good idea when a Democrat proposes it, then it's a good idea when a Republican proposes it and vice versa. Um, you know, I'd be very curious about what changed for Patty Murray. Like what happened is that, you know, there's a Democratic president who's saying it now. So now it's a good idea. Right? Um, it's a rare situation when you would see uh, usually pro-tax cut Republicans and conservatives seeing a tax cut proposal on the table and going, meh. <laughs> and that's kind of, but that is kind of the way I feel about this, uh, the proposal to suspend the gas tax, primarily because the federal tax on gasoline is 18 cents a gallon. Now, we're down a little bit from the national average of $5 per gallon, but we're only at 489 as of this morning. So if, you know, let's let's suppose that, you know, Congress, you know, decides, okay, we're doing this. And all of a sudden it goes from 489 
to tomorrow it goes to what? That would be, you know, 471. Would you be dancing in the streets? Would you be going to the gas station and say, fill up, it's only 471, it's awesome. <laughs> My guess is no. You'd appreciate it. You'd be, you know, and the same thing for similar for that 20 some cent Virginia gas tax repeal. I, I guess it's a, you know, I prefer that number than the other number, but it's not going to make that much of a difference in the wallet. And obviously there's you know, some speculation that the, uh, um, not all of that would get passed on to consumers. The, you know, the problem with our gas prices is that we have uh, increasing demand, a supply that is constrained by capacity at refineries. And oh, by the way, we have an administration that has signaled pretty much from the moment it took office, it was hostile to the oil industry, the natural gas industry and fossil fuels in general, which made oil companies and natural gas companies and fossil fuel companies in general decide, hey, we're not going to invest anymore because we know the government wants to shut us down. There's no point in making an investment that's going to take five years down the road or 10 years down the road to start paying off development of an oil field, et cetera, if in five to 10 years, the federal government may have succeeded in drastically reducing our access to the market. So, you know, I look at the end, you, know, you want better, you want lower gas prices, tell the oil industry that you don't, you're not trying to wipe them out anymore. You know, uh, you want, you know, cheaper gas prices, you know, get these oil refineries that have all been converted to uh, biofuel facilities, open up new gas, new refineries, expand the existing ones. Of course, that process takes a very long time to do. We've eliminated a million barrels a day of refining capacity over since before the pandemic. That has caught up with us. That's not the kind of solution that's going to reduce. Maybe in the fall, when people aren't driving like the way they do in summer, you know, people going on long road trips and vacations and stuff like that, maybe that'll reduce demand a bit, but I wouldn't count on that too much. Still got jet fuel. You still got all diesel fuel for uh, trucks. Remember, we want to do a whole bunch of uh, infrastructure projects from coast to coast. What do you think all those construction vehicles work on? What do you think makes the asphalt that your car drives on? Oil, right? You know, so you look at the add this up. All of these factors are pushing things higher. So in the end, the federal gas tax holiday, you know, in this context, it really does look like a gimmick. It really does look like something that looks like it's designed to make it look like the federal government is doing something, but it's not. You know, by the way, this is money that is usually set aside for highways and for transportation projects. And, you know, cutting that off is going to cost about $10 billion. That's not exactly chump change. And, you know, I think for most people would say well, we, the consumers would feel a very small amount of relief and create a, you know, significantly larger headache in terms of funding all of these, you know, road repairs, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm unenthusiastic about it. I'm not really opposed to it, but I, I just, you know, don't think it's really the long-term solution. The editors kind of up National Review laid out it very similarly. But if you're basically deciding whether or not you think a gas tax holiday is a good idea, depending on the partisan affiliation of who's pre presenting it, you're a hack and you probably should be voted out at the first opportunity. <laughs> Jim, you're very consistent on this. I remember when Chuck Schumer, after uh, Build Back Better blew up, uh, tried to be a moderate for about 30 seconds. And this was uh, one of the ideas that uh, that he trotted out. And you said at the time, if you think it's too high, lower it. Don't, don't do these uh, six-month or 12-month... Uh... That's a good point. Yeah, that's the other thing. Whatever the gas tax rate ought to be, it ought to be. Don't, you know... Exactly. And the, just to tell you how bad Biden's politics are, he wants a three-month uh, pause, which means we'll come roaring back at the end of September, which should be great for uh, Republicans when people see that slamming back. Now, you could always extend it, I guess, at that point, but... Uh... Right around as early voting starts. Well-timed, Mr. President. Well-timed. His political instincts are as sharp as ever. Uh, Jim, uh, good to be with you today. Enjoy your day, and I'll see you tomorrow. 
See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Tell a friend about us as well. Thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. They're a big help to us. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. And follow us on Twitter. He is at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Monday and join us again on Tuesday for the next 3 Martini Lunch. Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn joins me to discuss her efforts to protect our military from the left's woke agenda and the effort to separate parents from children. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, Senator Blackburn also explains how our skyrocketing energy costs could soon lead to food shortages, all because President Biden refuses to acknowledge reality. Join us. Follow the Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.